This morning I decided to take a one-week break from 1 Peter to look at Isaiah chapter 40 and the greatness of God. So would you open your Bibles to Isaiah 40? Or if you have a, a phone or a tablet or something like that, please open up there. Maybe you get a, get a pen and a paper and take some notes here this morning. Many in our country, many Christians, feel very weary with what is taking place. In fact, if I were to use one word to describe how many people feel, it's the word weary. Or maybe a synonym, tired, it's worn down. The shutdowns, the endless news of virus numbers, the, the media spin, the changing guidelines, what's taking place at work or at school, the social media arguments, the politics, just frankly, life, it wears us down. The danger we have as Christians is that we can feel, we can feel weary and want to quit trusting God and quit serving God. During extended periods of difficulties like we are in, like we have been in this past year, and even frankly as we're entering into 2021, we can feel defeated and we can feel worn down. But God promises that during these kind of trials, during these difficulties, that he can give us strength. That he can give us power to wait on him, to trust in him. God promises to give strength to those who wait on him and who trust him. And that's actually what Isaiah is addressing here in Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, notice verse 29, Isaiah 40, that's how he ends the chapter. He says in verse 29, he, that's God, gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he, that's God, increases strength. Look at verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So in this text, the Lord promises his followers in verses 29 and 30 that he gives strength and grace and power to those who wait on him. The idea of waiting on God is the idea of trusting him. It's the idea that you wait in faith. You're trusting that God will do what he says in his word. And you're waiting for him to trusting that he will fulfill his promises, that he has the power and he is great enough to do what he says he will do. Really, this entire chapter builds up to verses 29 and verse, uh, verse 29 and verse 31. And the whole chapter speaks of the greatness of God and it's kind of like a canon and, and the greatness of God is, is like gunpowder. And throughout this text, he, throughout this chapter, he keeps throwing the gunpowder into the cannon. And then he lights it, the fuse, in verse 29. And the cannon explodes with power from God to those who wait on him. So my proposition here this morning, I think, in this text is this. And that is, because God is great, he is able to provide strength to those who wait on him. Because God is great, he is able to provide strength to those who wait 
on him. What I want to do this morning is I want to put on display the greatness of God. I'm going to ask for you to listen, to seek to comprehend, to understand, and then to rest in that strength that God provides. Because God is great, he is able to provide strength to those who wait on him. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will use this text. I pray that you will preach a better message than I can by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The story goes of a young boy who lived in Chicago. This boy was in middle school, and he was short. He hadn't quite uh, reached his age of development yet, so he was still pretty small. All the other boys in his class and girls were a lot bigger than him, and so he would get picked on at school. In fact, when he would exit the school at 3 o'clock, he would go outside the door, and there would be some bigger boys, and they would push him around. They'd try to push him down, make him cry. One day he went home, and this, this boy was sitting in his kitchen, and his dad came home and saw that this little boy had a, had a black eye. And so the dad, you know, asked him what happened, and this little boy put his head down, and he didn't really want to disappoint his dad. His dad was a, a very masculine man. This, as the story goes, this dad was um, a linebacker for the Chicago Bears. So here's this 6'3", six, 6'4", six, whatever, linebacker, 370 pounds of solid muscle with a layer of fat, you know, that kind of cushioned it a little bit there. And, and here's this dad towering over this little boy, and this little boy is talking about how he's being picked on at school. So the father says, well, what I'll do is tomorrow I'll actually watch what happens and I'll, I'll help you out. So the next day the boy goes to school and goes throughout his day. And at the very end, he steps outside that door to exit at 3 o'clock and his dad is waiting in a car. And little did these bullies know that his dad was out there. And little did these bullies know that their dad was this towering linebacker for the Chicago Bears. And so this, this young little boy, he, he comes out there and he goes to the backyard and, he, and he, he, he's not cowering anymore. He's not scared anymore. He, he puffs his chest out. He looks at these bullies and he has this new courage. He has this new strength. And these bullies don't know, you know, what about his father. But his father gets out of the car and he begins to walk over and these boys come up and they start pushing the little boy and, and start pushing him down. And this father walks behind these bullies and this towering mass of muscle stands over these young middle school boys, and he says, excuse me, boys, can I help you? This is my son. And what do you think happened to those boys? Well, the story goes that the, the linebacker dad asked him if they had a problem, and they did have a problem. They had to go home and change their pants, right? Because they were afraid of this linebacker dad, and the young boy, he wasn't anymore. Something changed. When this boy put his Faith in his great, hulking, huge father, he had new strength, he had new courage, he had a new perspective. We are like that little boy. In our world, we can feel beaten down, we can feel like the world is against us, but when we truly understand the greatness of our God, of our Father, when we put our trust in Him, our, our spirit has new strength, His grace lifts us up and sustains us. And here in chapter 39 of Isaiah, the chapter before our chapter, Judah is beaten down. 
I mean, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, has come and killed many of its citizens over the years. It is tearing down, burning their cities, actually taking people and putting them on stakes and lighting them on fire. Now they're gone. Now the Babylonians are promised to come. If you look in verse 6 of chapter 39, God actually promises the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And so now the Babylonians are going to come and kill a bunch of people and, and now Israel, Judah, is going to be shipped off to Babylon. And this country, Jerusalem as a city and the country of, Jude, of Judah, were under the judgment of God. And verse chapter 40 really transitions now to a time when Judah is under this condemnation and God now speaks comfort to his people. Let me just pause here and say something, and that is chapter 40 is written to those who are under God's judgment, but it's written to comfort those who trust in God under his judgment. I think our country, it's, it's becoming more and more evident our country is under the judgment of God. Read Romans chapter 1. God gives people over to their own sinful lusts and desires. And, and what you see what you see for God's judgment is that God judges people by saying, live how you want to live by your own passions. And that's our country. But this is not a message about judgment. This is actually a message of comfort for God's people. Because chapter 40 is written to God's faithful people who will live under that judgment. And chapter 40 displays God's greatness so people can get strength from him as they place their faith in him. Notice how chapter 40 begins. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says our God. These Jewish people would have been shipped off to Babylon. They needed comfort. When you are in a time of distress, what do you want more than anything is relief and comfort. And true comfort can only come from one who is able to help one who is able to deliver you. When you have pain in your tooth and you want relief, you go to a dentist to hopefully help you so you can have comfort once again. When a baby is hungry, it cries for its mother who can give it milk so it can be comforted. And as born-again believers, when we are distressed, we cry out to God, our Father, because He is able to help us. So true comfort comes from God because he is great enough to help us. So in chapter 40, what we see here is God coming to comfort his people. There are three voices here in chapter 40 that cry out in comfort. I'm not going to read all these uh, passages, but you can later if you want. In verse 3, you see the first voice is really the voice of John the Baptist who will come in 700 years. And he announces the victory of Jesus Christ, the victory of the Messiah. Then in chapter 40, verse 6, we see the next voice is a voice of comfort for God's word. God's word is faithful and it will do what it promises. And the third voice we find down in verse number 9, and this is the voice of a herald. And this is the picture of a, of a messenger running ahead in a city and announcing to everyone, hey, the king has won the victory. And, and he is so certain in the greatness of God He's so certain the might and power of God. He, this herald announces God's victory as if it's already happened. In other words, he's so certain that God will come and deliver. And of course, we're talking about 
Jesus coming in 700 years, he's so certain. He says, listen, behold, your God, here he is. He is the great God who delivers. And so look down in verse number 9. We're going to really look at this last voice as he declares the greatness of God. And the picture here, I want you to have this picture in your mind of, of, of Jewish people in, in Jerusalem who have seen their family killed right in front of them, slaughtered, their town uh, burned and turned to rubble. Jerusalem was turned to rubble. They were carted off to Babylon. And, and Babylon really was a city that at, at its center had a temple to the god, their idol, Marduk. And as you would go into Babylon, in fact, I have a picture up here of what someone might have thought it looked like. They had this, this major road. This actually doesn't give a, a very good picture of how wide it was. It was a 70-foot wide road that, um, that people would come on to come into the city. They would enter into a gate called the Iskatar Gate. And this road would lead up to a huge temple to this god, this false god. This huge temple sat in the center of Babylon. It was a, a symbol to the power of this God. And, and kings like King Nebuchadnezzar, he would have held the hands of this God and he would have prayed to this, to this idol. And they would have trusted this. And, and think about these people uh, that are Jewish people in Babylon in captivity. They've seen their entire city decimated and everyone's going around and they're saying, look how great our God is. Marduk, look what he did to your city. And so what, what he's calling people to do what the prophet is telling people to do, he's saying, listen, like a herald, go up to the top of a mountain and look around and say, behold our God. They say, look at, behold our God, this idol in a temple in the city. But you go up to the top of a mountain, look at creation, look at the vastness of all that's around us and say, listen, who created this? Behold our God. And so that's what you see there in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And then he presents a picture of the greatness of God. First you can see God is presented as the sovereign king who has great love for his people. First, we see God's great love. Look at verse 10. Behold the Lord. The word Lord is the word Adonai, the, the idea of a sovereign king. Behold your sovereign king, God, comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And notice the love here. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah describes God as a king who shepherds his people. Notice those verbs there that, that speak of God's great compassion and care for his people. Verse 11, he tends them. He, he gathers them like little lambs. He carries them in his bosom. He gently leads them. God loves his people. Isaiah's emphasis is on the great compassion of God for his people. And church, God's people, I want you to know, 
the scripture declares that God has great love for you. The The text wants us to recognize that he is present now with us. He says, behold your God. Their God was not stuck under the rubble in Jerusalem of the temple. No, behold, he, he's the God that's alive. He's the God that's with you now. And he actually, he actually interacts with you in love. He directs his love toward you. May we remember as Christians, the greatest way God has showed his love to us is by sending Jesus. And nothing, nothing, my friend, can separate you from God's love. Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you feel separated from the love of Christ? Well, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, verse 37 says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us all. Do not doubt Friend, do not doubt God's great love for you. If you're a Christian, if you're a a child of God, he has not stopped loving you. He is like a shepherd who cares for you. You might feel, you might feel like, I don't feel love from God. Like, I don't don't sense his love. I'm a Christian, but I I don't sense his love. Let me encourage you. Go back to the word of God. Meditate on his words, on his sacrifice for you. Cast your cares upon God. The Bible says because he cares for you. Sometimes we can feel distant from God. But I want you to know this, church, that it's not God who's distant. It's you who's distant. It's your heart. So run to him into his loving arms. God is great in his love. And then next we see God is great in his immensity. God is great in his immensity. The prophet, the prophet asks a series of rhetorical questions. And the answer to all these questions is basically no one but God. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust in a measuring cup? Kind of like he's, he's able to measure all the dust on earth and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. So here he's highlighting the immensity of God. The immensity of God tries to encapsulate really the, the infinite greatness of who God is. I'm using words to try to describe God. There might be some words that maybe some younger children listening don't understand. You can ask your parents maybe, or I might try to explain it to you. But the word immensity is just trying to describe the God as exceedingly far above everything. He's far above his creation. He's actually independent of his creation. And verse 12 tries, tries to give a, a word picture of this to us to see how great God is. God is so immense. God is so immense that he can hold in his hand all the oceans, all the water of the world. Think about that. How much water is there in the oceans? I read... Online, a website said that there are, four, there are 343 quintillion gallons of water in the ocean. That's a lot of water. Now, I have some water right here. Can you imagine if I tried to hold this water in my hand? I, I couldn't even do it, right? It would fall right through. I can't even hold a little bit of water in my hand. 
But yet God is so immense, he's so great, that God is able to hold all of the oceans in his hand. In fact, he says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who can measure the heavens? And by that he means the stars. By that he means really the universe, everything that's out there beyond earth. Who can do that? God can. With a span. A span is really the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. That's how they would measure something back then as a measurement. And that's really one of the smallest measurements they had. And they're saying God, the universe compared to God is like he can, something he can measure with his hand. The span. I just want you to think about the immensity of God. I'm going to give some illustrations here. I'm going to... have got a basketball here. As you can tell. I want you to imagine the earth, our earth that we're on right now, I want you to imagine it as the size of an NBA regulation basketball. So about nine and a half inches right here. So this is, we're going to pretend this is our earth. We're just, just think about the distance of different planets. If we had, uh, if the, if we had to measure the distance of the moon, the moon would be a tennis ball that'd be about 23 feet away. So I, I imagine that's probably back there where the baptistry is there. So that's the moon that's, that's orbiting our earth here. The sun would be an eight-story tall fireball about a mile and a half away. So probably around Santa Susana High School down there. How long, how long do you think it would take us to travel from earth here to the sun? And it's a footnote. That's a bad idea to do that, by the way. <laughs> Die. But anyways, let's say we're getting, we were get, to get on a plane and we were going to travel to the sun. If we were flying at 500 miles an hour, it would take us 21 years to get to the sun. Now, now you think about this. How long does it take for the sun light to get to our earth? So if we were able to travel the, the speed of light, how long does it take for sunlight to get to our earth? Do you know it takes eight and a half minutes to get to our earth? So the sun we feel outside, if you're somewhere where the sun's shining in, that sunlight took eight and a half minutes to get there. Now how, how long does it take from the, the, the light to get from the sun to Pluto? The last planet, if you want to call it a planet, it's kind of debate about that, but the last planet in our, in our um, solar system, it takes four, let me see if I can find it here, make sure I got it right. It takes five and a half hours for sunlight to get from the sun to Pluto. How about, how about how long does it take for sunlight to go from our sun to the nearest star? So if you were to look in the sky and you saw the nearest star to us, the closest star to our solar system, how long does it take? It takes four and a half years for light to travel from the sun to that star. I mean, my point is, is, is that our solar system is pretty big, but our solar system sits actually in a galaxy called the Milky Way. Think about it like this. I got a quarter right here. It's a pretty small little thing. Hopefully you can see that right there. We're going we're gonna to pretend that this is, we're going to scale this. Our solar system is going to be this size. So the sun, you know, is like the, the ear of George Washington there, okay? And, and actually, our solar system with our nine planets, our, our nine planets, I should say, is actually only a small part of our solar system. Our solar system is a lot bigger than that. Let's pretend this is the size of our solar system. What would be the size of the Milky Way? You know, our solar system is in the Milky Way. What's the size of our Milky Way? 
Well, they've estimated that the size of the Milky Way is the size of the United States in comparison to a quarter like this. So think about it, like we're on this Earth, in this solar system, in this galaxy, the Milky Way, it's the size of the United States. Do you realize that there are over 100 billion uh, solar systems like this in our galaxy? So if, if we were to have all these big quarters, there's like 100 billion quarters of these solar systems spread across the United States, right, in the, the scale. And do you realize how many galaxies there are? First of all, let me kind of back up and say, if you were to travel from one end of our galaxy, the Milky Way, all the way to the other side, so if you travel from across the United States, it'd take you, you know, what, 24, whatever, you know, 30 hours, whatever it is. If you were to travel from one side of our Milky Way to the other side, it would take, at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years in our galaxy. And so, that, so we have our solar system, we have our galaxy, just the immensity of even our galaxy, we have hundreds of billions of solar systems and, and stars, therefore, in our galaxy as well. And they've estimated that there are over 10 trillion galaxies, 10 trillion galaxies besides our galaxy. And so I got some pictures up here for you. Let's see if I can do this here. So there's, there's that. There's the nearest star. I think I was supposed to do this while I was talking and I forgot. And th this is our galaxy right here. This is the Milky Way galaxy. You can see there's our, a picture of where we are right there. Yeah, that's somewhere right there is our little solar system. And there are actually over 10 trillion other galaxies out there with billions of their own solar systems and stars within them. Can, can I just say that that's pretty big, right? That's huge. Our galaxy is huge. The universe is large. But for God, it's just a handbreadth. If God is so immense that he can measure immeasurable things like that, what does that tell us about God? That tells us that God cannot be contained. Notice the greatness of God's next omnipresence. The greatness of God's omnipresence. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? In other words, if God can measure the immeasurable, then who can measure God? And what's the answer to that? No one. Why is that? Because God is omnipresent. God is immeasurable. Omnipresent means that he is everywhere. He's all present. He's unlimited and he's finite in respect to space. God created space. He created material things. He created in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he created space. He created things that are material. But God does not have space. He does not have size or dimensions. God is able to be in every place with his whole being. He's able to act within that space in a complex and multidimensional ways. Yet he exists outside of space. He dwells, he exists outside of space, but yet he dwells and interacts within space. And let's please not confuse this with pantheism. That's the idea that God is the sun, or God is the moon. God is not the sun, God is not the moon. God created the sun, he created the moon. God preserves the sun. God is there, God is here. God is outside of all those things at the same time. God is everywhere. So God is omnipresent. Verse 13 
who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the picture here is of a king who has counselors who come in to give him advice. And the question is, who advises God? And what's the answer? No one. No one advises God. So verse 14 displays the greatness of God's omniscience, of God's divine wisdom. God's thoughts are so far above man's thoughts. God has never learned. He knows all things. Listen to this. God knows all things, past, present, and future, in one instant present. Did that just blow your mind a little bit? Hopefully it did, because you're thinking about someone, a person who is, in some sense, one we can't even really imagine. Here's a thought to blow your mind. God has always known what he knows, even before it was possible for anyone to know it. God has always known what he knows, even before it was possible for anyone to know it. Another guy said it like this. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? No matter how great, no matter how great you think God is, he is immensely greater than you can ever imagine. The prophet here wants us to feel how insignificantly small we are compared to God. And the best he can do really is give us these metaphors. And so look at verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Here I got a cup of water. Got my little props here this morning for you. Got my cup of water here. And he says here, he says, The nations... And he's not saying just one nation. He's saying all the nations are like a drop. We have 7 billion people on this planet. Think of all the nations and all the, 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 some of the superpowers, the armies, the nuclear weapons, the fleet of navy ships, the stealth fighters. Combine all that and compare it to God. And the Bible says it's like this. It's like just a little drop. That's what the nations of the world are like compared to God. It's here, it falls, disappears, it's gone. A drop. He uses another metaphor in verse 16 to speak of God's great worth. God's great worthiness. Verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon was known for its massive forests, its mighty forests, we might think of the Amazon today and all the, the forests, all the trees that are there. How valuable is God? How, how much greater is God than everything else? Take all those trees and stack them up as a, for a sacrifice. Take all the animals of the earth and, and kill them and pile them up on that sacrifice. And if someone were to do that, to seek to have this enormous sacrifice to celebrate God's worth, it wouldn't even come close to being adequate to celebrate and honor God. God is great in his worth. Compared to God, look at verse 17. It says, all the nations are like nothing before him. They are accounted to him as less than nothing. Now we're going into negative numbers. <laughs> less than nothing in emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? An idol? Like, how, 
How insulting is that? And that's what people of the world do. They try to think about God and they compare him with something on earth. And so that's what they do in verse 19. A craftsman casts an idol. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver. And so they take wood, they take stone, they put gold over it. And they say, well, this is what God is like. Or maybe this is actually a God. But God mocks those sticks and stones as nothing, as less than nothing. In verse 21, he says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, it is the Lord God. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And this speaks of God's greatness, of his great sovereign power. God's great sovereign power. The picture here is of God as a king who sits above the world, sits above the earth, and his power is immeasurable and so exhaustive that God can do anything he wants. And he looks down and people are like grasshoppers. I grew up in Indiana, and I remember going to places like Chicago and going to the top of these skyscrapers. You go up these elevators and you go to the top and, you know, in Indiana, basically anything over two feet is, or two stories is tall, right? I mean, I'm out here and we live in the flat plains here of Simi, and then you have these little, we would call in Indiana mountains around us, okay? That's how flat Indiana is. So you go up to the top, though, in Chicago of these, of these skyscrapers, and you look down, and you see these little cars, and I can remember one of the first times being in one of those skyscrapers, and you see the cars, and they kind of look like matchbox cars, and the people kind of look like little ants. And it's almost like you could play with them down there. That's God's perspective of us in this earth. It's like we're like grasshoppers. And then look at verse 22. It's like God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. I mean, God, God has put the stars in the sky. And it's like he says, hey, I got a, I got a tent for you to sleep under. Verse 23, notice the greatness of God's providential rule. Who brings princes down to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? I mean, think of the great rulers of this world. Think about this week. There's going to be an inauguration coming up. And all these world powers and all these people who were put in powerful positions, the greatest positions in the world, people say. Many people will be giving, him, giving each other high fives. Right? I'm going to be able to make powerful decisions. But consider those in power who consider themselves great and they consider what God says about them. God says, actually, I am the one who raises up and puts down. I bring princes to nothing. Verse 23, look at verse 23. It says, he, he says, who brings, that word brings right there is the same Hebrew word used in the Old Testament to speak of appointing someone to an official position. It's used in Ezra chapter 8 verse 20 of appointing servants. So, so who put our elected officials in place? Like some say, it was the people voted him in. Some say, oh, it was a fraud. Like all, all the fraud going on. Well, God says, I appoint officials. And sometimes we can look at that and say, but, but, but think of all their plans. Think of what they're going to do. I mean, we're, we're going to have a government in Washington that's going to be one of the most anti-God governments our country has ever seen. And so we can look at that and go, they're going to ruin everything. Look at all the things they're going to do. But God says in verse 23, he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Yes, they're going to make their plans. They're going to try to go against God. But he rules 
with such sovereign precision that their edicts are like nothing. They are empty. And, and don't get me wrong. Yes, the, the edicts, the plans might hurt. They might cause even hurt to us. But in the end, God does what he wills. Rulers come, rulers go. God's word and his will is certain to prevail. In fact, look at verse 24. These rulers are pictured as these, as these little plants that come up and God just blows them away. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he, that's God, blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Next, notice the greatness of his uniqueness. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God is unique. Who can you compare him to? What's the answer? The answer is no one. Why? Because he says, it says he is the Holy One. Holy is the idea that that God is unique and set apart from everything else. Holy means that God is so beyond us that he transcends us in his nature and in his perfections. Sometimes we think of holiness just in regard to moral purity, and that's definitely true about God. He's morally perfect in every way. But God's holiness actually means for God that he is exclusive and exceptional in his nature and in his being. God is unique. In fact, the prophet wants us to understand the uniqueness of God in verse 26. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So again, he's on this mountain and he's considering God. And so the prophet says, look up and consider what? The stars, the starry host. Consider the greatness of God. Now, if you're in L.A., don't look up. You're going to see smog and nothing else. But if you go somewhere where there's not the pollution light and not the pollution of smog or whatever, and you are, you're able to actually look up and see the stars, you can see the greatness of God. Again, just consider our galaxy, the Milky Way. Again, as I said earlier, Milky, the Milky Way, it's estimated that there are 100 billion solar systems, close to 200 billion stars within our own galaxy, Scientists estimate, again, that there are over 10 trillion galaxies. So if you multiply, let's take the low number of 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and let's take 10 trillion galaxies. If you multiply those together, the result is that in the starry host of heaven in the universe, there are over one septillion stars. That's a one with 24 zeros after it. We're just talking about numbers we don't even comprehend, right? In fact, one leading scientist says that number is probably likely a gross underestimate. A study out of the University of Hawaii calculated how many grains of sand are on Earth. So they considered all the sand on beaches and in the ocean and in the deserts, and they calculated, say, if a certain sand is a certain size and there's this much sand, how much sand is on Earth. And so they, they actually estimated there's roughly, and I know I'm throwing out numbers you probably don't comprehend, but roughly seven quintillion 500 quadrillion grains of sand on earth. Which means this. Listen to this. It means this. That means there are far more stars in our universe than there are grains of sand on our planet. That is astonishing. 
In fact, something else this study was saying, it was saying consider the greatness of the universe and the stars, but also consider if I were to take 10 drops of water and plop them on my paper right here, and those 10 drops, there are over one septillion uh, molecules of H2O in there. If you were to count all the molecules of H2O, the amount of molecules in there are over one septillion. In other words, this is many, many molecules in 10 drops of water as there are stars in this. The point is this. Who created all that? Our great God did. And friend, if you believe that it all happened by chance, if you're an evolutionist, you believe it all happened, you're, you're, it's ridiculous. I would say you're a fool to believe that. He's saying look up and consider the vastness of of what God has created. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out the host by their number. And listen to this, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Think about that. Every star in the universe, God knows that star. He has a name for that star. He doesn't miss any stars. Because he's strong in power, not one of them is missing. And so what is the conclusion to all this? When we consider the greatness of God, what is the conclusion to all of this? God is great. And, and if God knows the name of stars, and he says he cares for you, then what does that mean about God's love for you? How can we complain and say, where is God in our country? Where is God in our life? Does he even care? That's what you see in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? I mean, that's kind of how you're saying it. Like, where's God at? I don't think he really cares for me. How can you say that? If you consider the greatness of God, his great love for you, and the greatness of his immensity and his power and his sovereignty, and he says, I love you. He sent his son to this earth to die for you. I mean, think about this. This great God who knows every star by name, he actually loves you enough to send his own son into this world to die on the cross for you. How incredible is it that God says, I love you? when you consider his greatness. How astonishing should it be that he sent his son to die for you? How can we ever wonder, does God really love me? God's people here in this text were in a dark trial, a great difficulty. They were fretting, they were worried, they complained. They lived in a way, in verse 27, that shows that they didn't really believe in the greatness of God. In fact, look at verse 27. He says, why do you say? And the word say there is actually in the Hebrew, it's an imperfect. The idea that it's an ongoing action. It's like, why do you continue to say? Why do you keep saying, where's God at? Why do you keep saying, does God really care for us? Hello? Do you recognize how great God is? And oh, my friends, I'm afraid that many of us Christians, many of us in the churches of America, we are like those people of verse 27. Many are shocked by what's happening in our country. And then therefore they wonder, where's God at? Like, why is God not here? When's he going to show up? They fret, they worry, they're fearful. But when we respond in that way, we actually demonstrate that we don't trust in God. 
And I think many times responding in that way shows who or what we truly worship. It shows that we worship the gods of our bank accounts because we're sad that those bank accounts might diminish. It shows that we worship the God of our favorite elected official that didn't get into office or of our talk show host that we thought was going to reveal the truth to us and save the day or even of our own self who was trying to figure everything out, who was trying to put as much he could on social media to change the world and it didn't work. It shows that our gods are misplaced, that our gods are ourself, or our gods are found in this world, instead of our God being the God who sits on the throne of heaven. And so he says in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right hand, my right is disregarded by my God? He says in verse 28, your response, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, this is the word Yahweh, This is the covenant name for God, Yahweh, the one who has a covenant relationship with you. He is the everlasting Elohim. He is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Trust in that God. He's not tired. He's not worn out. He knows what he's doing. So who is our God? Well, there you can see again God's greatness, the greatness of his eternality. He's the everlasting God. Everlasting means that God cannot be measured by time. He transcends all temporal limitations. He created time, actually, and he exists outside of time, yet he interacts within it. It's amazing to think about. And you can see that in verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, so he transcends time and the creator of the ends of the earth. So he actually acts and responds eminently within time. In verse 28, he does not faint or grow weary. He's immutable. This is the greatness of God's unchangeableness. And his understanding is unsearchable. And the last one I'm going to say here is God's, this is God's greatness, the greatness of his, his is incomprehensibility. God is incomprehensible. Now that doesn't mean that you can't comprehend God at all. The incomprehensibility of God means that you nor no one else can fully understand God. No one can understand God exhaustively. Human beings, we're finite, limited creatures, so all we can think of of God-like is in our finite, limited way. God is infinite. He's unlimited. He's not bound by time and space or anything else. I was thinking about it this way. Picture a, a boy who's maybe a prince, and uh, he wants to go to the, the grand ball. There's a huge, in the huge, in the castle, there's a grand hall and there's going to be kings and queens and princesses and princes and there's going to be dancers and musicians. It's, it's huge. There's, there's food everywhere and, and it's going to be amazing. But, you know, the queen says to the prince, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come. You're too young. You know, you need to go to, up to bed and, and, you know, you'll be put to bed and stuff. But this boy sneaks down and he comes to the door and he looks to the door and there's the keyhole right there and he can't see the grandeur of everything in there. He can only see what's through that keyhole and maybe he sees the orchestra, maybe he sees a a lady dance by. He can see just a little bit of what's taking place in that grand hall. And honestly, I think that's kind of like us. Like, we cannot understand the limitlessness of God, the, the full grandeur of God, but God does allow us to see a little bit of him. And how does he reveal himself to us? 
Well, we've been talking about his creation, so we can see him in his creation. We can see his greatness, I should say, in his creation. But we know him personally. We know his, his, his goodness to us, his work for us through the word of God. Really, that keyhole is God's word. And how much then, therefore, friends, if we understand the greatness of God, should we value the word of God that tells us about this God? Then last here, what does this mean for us? Because God is great, he is able to provide strength to those who wait on him. Verse 29. We just, we just stuff the cannon full of gunpowder of God's greatness. Now we're going to light it on fire. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because God is great in his knowledge, in his wisdom, in his power, in his providential rule, because he's great in his great love towards you, he can give you strength to carry on and to serve him. He gives power to the faint. He gives strength to you. And he gives it to those who wait on him. And notice the illustration that we see in verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What a great picture he gives us here. A great illustration of an eagle. I read about an eagle this past week, and I read that an eagle's wings are actually not very powerful. If you compare an eagle to, may, say, a hummingbird, and pound for pound, a hummingbird is actually a lot stronger than an eagle if it was, you know, to be as, as large as an eagle. The power of an eagle is not found in the muscle of its wings to flap. It's actually found in the wind under his wings that, is, that lifts him up and is allowing him to soar. One man described the strength of an eagle like this. The strength of eagles is not found in their flapping but soaring. An eagle will perch high atop of, of a canyon below. And when the rising wind is just right, the eagle will fold its wings in, to its side and it will literally cast itself down into the chasm, into the abyss. And when the speed is just right, the bird will spread its wings, catch the air, catch the thermals, and rise up and soar. For the eagle, he places his faith in the power of the wind under his wings. So as you look at an eagle soaring, he looks powerful, but really it's just him resting in the strength of the wind current. And what a great picture of us hoping in God. We are like those eagles. We don't have enough strength to flap and fly around all day. So with little strength of our own, we cast ourselves upon God and fall upon his greatness. And our strength comes as we rest in him and he lifts us up. We soar as eagles do on the, the winds below their wings. And so friend, are you weary? Are you tired? Do you need strength? We all do. Wait on God. Trust 
in God. When we truly understand God's greatness, when we rest our faith in him, he gives us strength to keep going, to soar, to trust him. Because God is great, he is able to provide strength for those who wait on him. My goal this morning really wasn't to give a lot of application. It was really to help you have a big view of God. And I hope that as you consider this sermon, there'll be a couple things you'll take away. One is I pray that you will really meditate and dwell upon this passage and the greatness of God. And, and maybe turn off the news and the TV and all those things that those little, those little bullies after school that tell you how little you are and how insignificant your God is and allow your God to stand towering above you so you can trust him and trust him. Go to his word, cry out to him, cast your care upon him and rest in our God. Let's pray. Would you bow your head with me wherever you're at? I know it's probably you're in your house somewhere in your home or maybe somewhere where maybe it's a little awkward to do it, but would you just do, go ahead and do it right now in prayer? And I'm going to ask if you would just spend a few minutes praying to God. If everyone could just be quiet wherever you're at, people around you, ask him just to be quiet. Just pray to the Lord right now and call out to him. Bow your heart before God, the great and awesome God. Praise him for his greatness. Humble yourself before him and trust in his might and his power. Let's pray. Oh God, how, how small we consider you are many times. How, how many times, Lord, do we not even consider you? Do we get our minds set on things that are below, things of this earth, things that will perish, things that will vanish away? And how, Lord, how encouraging, how much strength comes when we rest our mind upon you. You are the eternal one. You have done a work in our heart that lasts forever. For God, you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in you should not perish but have everlasting life. We have something eternal and that is a gift of everlasting life from you. May we live in that reality. May we rest in you when our hearts are anxious, when we're worried, when we, we forget or maybe we even question your presence and your love, God, I pray we will first confess that as wrong and we'll go to you and ask for your strength and trust you and rest in you. Lord, we cast our cares upon you because we know that you are the everlasting God, the sovereign king who cares for us. We thank you for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I pray that this text was helpful to you as we consider what's going on in our country, in our own personal lives. And I pray you'll trust the Lord. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm getting out of quarantine tomorrow. And so I would love to meet with you or pray with you or talk to you if you need help. So please, let's do that. Let's not run from each other. Let's run to each other, to each other in wisdom and um, in discernment, but also in love. And so I pray that we'll do that together.
Thank you so much for gathering with us virtually. God bless you.